Well, good evening, everyone. Advent is a season of hope. Advent is about watching for something, someone, to show up. Advent is about waiting in the dark for the light to come. Advent is a season of hope. Hope. Hope is one of those things we assume we understand when, in fact, we often do not understand it at all. We tend to think of hope as looking at present circumstances, imagining what is possible, and working towards it, a kind of activism. Or we think of hope as a posture of optimism that predicts that everything will work out just fine in the end. But true hope is neither activism nor optimism. True hope is something altogether different. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in our reading from Romans 8, 24. He says, Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? In other words, hope goes beyond anything you can see or anticipate as a possibility from within yourself or your powers or your circumstances. Dietrich Bonhoeffer understood the nature of hope and therefore he understood well the meaning of this season of Advent. Writing from a prison cell in November of 1943, he penned these words, A prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. Of course, just months after writing these words in a letter to a friend, Bonhoeffer was executed by the Nazis. But he was right. The door to freedom for him and for us is opened only from the outside by the coming and the coming again of Jesus Christ. And Advent calls us to attend to this fact that what we need, that what we really long for is something entirely outside of our control, the coming again of Jesus. Advent is about living in the time between the achievement of redemption in Christ's first coming and the promise that this achievement will be brought to bear on the evil that we see all around us and within us every day. It's about waiting for that light to dawn, waiting for that promised opening of the prison doors. It's about living in hope. And Advent is the beginning of the Christian calendar because it's really the epitome of the Christian life, a life that lives in that tension, that lives between promise and fulfillment, between Christ's first coming and his coming again. It's not easy to live in hope. It's not easy to live in this tension, though, is it? As we stare into the darkness 
that's around us, that's within us, we're tempted to despair. So where does the power for Advent life come from? How can we possibly live in hope in a world that is marked by suffering? Well, it's only by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. So today, on the first Sunday in Advent, we are going to finish our series on the Holy Spirit and look at the Spirit as the Spirit of hope, how the Holy Spirit works in our lives to make us people of hope. So I'd ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verse 12. But before we get into the text, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come into the world and brought light and immortality, life and immortality to light through the gospel. We thank you for the promise that the light has come into the world and the darkness has not, cannot, will not overcome it. And yet, Lord, we wait and we long for your coming again to make all things new. Teach us to be people of hope as we suffer, as we exercise patience in awaiting your return. Speak to us now through your word. Your servants are listening. Amen. So how does the Spirit make us into people of hope? How is he active in our lives to shape us as people of hope? Here's the first thing I want to show you from this passage. First, the Holy Spirit assures us of our identity. He tells us who we are as inheritors of divine glory. He testifies to our identity as the sons and daughters of God. Let me just read to you from Romans 8, verses 14 to 17. Paul writes, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The spirit of adoption who testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Spirit of adoption. As many of you will know, uh, my wife Annie and I are in the process of adopting our foster children. Um, the court case for the two sisters, the eldest Two, two children uh, will be taking place next week, and we're hoping that the judge will rule in our favor and that legal finalization of that will be just around the corner. It's really exciting. They will be officially adopted. But there's something else beyond this legal process that really needs to happen, that is happening, thankfully, but really needs to happen in these children's lives. And it's what we're praying for and working towards all the time. And that is not just that they will know that they're legally adopted, but that their hearts will come to know that they are adopted. That 
they will know that they really belong in our family, that they can cry out to me at any time, Abba, Father, and have the confidence that I will hear them and honor their cry. I want them to know in their heart of hearts that everything that is mine is theirs, unfortunately sometimes, <laughs> and that they're really part of the family. And it's really hard sometimes because this is an ongoing process. Sometimes it's like we're telling them how much we love them. We're doing our best in word and deed to, to show them that this is true, and they don't always really believe it. How much like us is that, though, in terms of God is telling us, he has told us in his word that we are his sons and daughters, that we are his children. He wants us to know that we're not just legally, theoretically adopted or justified or brought into his family, but to, to know from our heart of hearts to be able to cry out to him, Abba, Father, to know that he cares for us, that everything he has will one day be yours. That's the Holy Spirit's job. That is what the Spirit is, has come into your life to do, is to tell you who you are, to testify to your spirit, to contend with all the narratives that are going around you that come from the world and the flesh and the devil, to testify to you, you are the ch a child of God. And he's saying, come on, it's okay. You can say, Abba, Father. And in the Advent nature of our lives, this waiting, this suffering, this groaning, as we'll talk about, we need this assurance. We need this work of the Holy Spirit to, to contend with all the things that are going on in us as we find ourselves stuck in sin, condemned, or suffering and wondering if we are abandoned. It's so easy to feel as if we're not really God's children, that we're just sinners cut off from the grace of God. But the Holy Spirit comes into your life through prayer, through scripture, through Christian relationships, through his, his, his still small voice, witnessing to you all the time saying, you belong. You belong, even in the midst of this waiting and this suffering for Christ's coming again. So this is the first thing the Spirit is doing to make you a person of hope, is to, uh, to assure you of your place in God's family. Here's the second thing that I see in this passage. The Holy Spirit causes us to groan for glory. He creates this sense of longing for the new world. He makes us dissatisfied with the old and desperate for the new. This is also a mark of Christian hope. Look at verses 18 to 23. I'm going to read all of them. There's so much in this passage, but I'm just picking out a little bit uh, as we go. Starting at verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation longs with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of birth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. All of the universe, Paul says, is groaning. Groaning, it's this really strong word, a cry of agony or anguish, or even a death cry, groaning. It's the, the groaning of a woman giving birth to a child without any medicine in the ancient world. It's the pained groan of warriors on a battlefield who know if they don't get help, they will die from their wounds. And Paul says that all the universe is groaning under this agony, longing for redemption. The universe has been subjected to futility and decay by the introduction of sin by humanity, and it is longing to be made new under a redeemed humanity. It's crying out. It's a whole topic in and of itself that you can meditate on or we can talk about another time. But what Paul says is that Christians, because we have the first fruits of the Spirit, we are consciously groaning too. I think what Paul's saying, it's as if the Holy Spirit brings this heightened awareness of what's really wrong and this awareness of what's really needs to take place for things to be made new. And it creates this almost unbearable tension in our lives where we just groan. And I mention this because I want you to see, I, I actually believe that there is sometimes a real heightened agony to the Christian life, a form of suffering or groaning that perhaps the world doesn't even know. The Holy Spirit makes you aware of all that ought to be and all that will be. And yes, you are comforted. He is the comforter. But it also heightens the anguish. And you long and you groan. You're in anguish. It's like you're in childbirth. And this is part of what it means to be a Christian person, to be fully alive to the tension between things as they are and as they will be. To live between the first and the second coming of Christ, stretched, groaning. Do any of you know what I'm talking about? Do you experience this sense of groaning in your life as you encounter what the scripture says about you as a Christian and yet you see this ongoing struggle in your life with sin? Or you think about all the things that you would love to do and accomplish that you feel called to do and that you're held back by illness, whether it's mental or physical. Or maybe you just turn on the television or walk out the door and you see the darkness that is around us, the poverty, the decaying lives. Maybe this past weekend you saw the dysfunction in your family, and you groan for things to be made new and to be put right. And you say, I just want Christ to return to make all things new. And the Holy Spirit, he makes us people of hope 
by awakening these desires within us, that va- these, these desires that vastly outstrip the capacities, and we long for, for these things to be satisfied, and we're groaning. There's nothing holier, I would say, than this groaning. I think the, those we hold up as, as heroes of the Christian faith were often deep groaners. So if you're experiencing that groaning, let me tell you, that is, it's not fun. It is a mark of true Christian hope. And there's nothing holier than that. It's the Spirit's work. Here's the last thing I want to point out from this passage. I'll read another section here. And that's the Holy Spirit gives us the power to persevere. He himself is the resource we need to live in the tension of Advent life. He gives us the power of his presence in suffering. Look at verses 26 to 30. Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. As I've already said, to be a Christian is to find yourself stretched, to be a person of weakness, a person looking for the door to be opened from the outside. To live in Advent time is to live between the already and the not yet. It's to be a person who suffers and who groans and who longs for glory. But notice that Paul says here, something about the resource for this. He doesn't just give an answer to our suffering. He talks about a person that's present in our suffering. He says, you are not alone in your groaning. In fact, God himself comes into your weakness. He groans with you and for you. Do you see that? The spirit groans with you and for you. That God himself groans, that God cries out. And we should stop and ask ourselves, how is it that the infinite, omnipotent God can groan, that he can join us in our groaning? How can he know your suffering, your longing, and be present in it, sharing in the experience of it? It's a kind of radical thing Paul's saying, actually. And the answer to the question is found in Christmas, in the incarnation. It's in the incarnation of Christ that God joined himself to the groaning world, that God became a groaner, that he was subject to rejection and weakness and sadness and disappointment, that he knew the limitations 
of physical life that he went all the way into death and he groaned throughout the process. You can see him groaning throughout the Gospels and you see him groaning and crying out on the cross. In fact, you might say that at the cross he experienced all the world's groaning at once, that he felt himself abandoned, forsaken, and he was absorbing in himself all the evil that we've done to one another, the world, and even to God himself. And what Paul is saying here is he talks about the spirit coming into our groaning and groaning with us and for us is that our groaning and suffering becomes united to the groaning and suffering that Jesus had on the cross. Is this just so that we know that God feels our pain? No. Something more powerful than that. See, I think many of us can endure great suffering, but the thing that makes it virtually unendurable is the seeming senselessness of it. How can I make sense of this? Why is this occurring? And what the Spirit does by joining us, joining our suffering to Christ, is he makes it part of the suffering of Jesus. He joins it to the suffering of Christ. Did you see where Paul said earlier that we uh, suffer with Christ in verse 17 in order that we may also be glorified with him? See, the presence of God, the groaner, in our groaning tells us that we are part of a pattern that does not end in senselessness or agony or death. It ends in resurrection from the dead. And this is the pattern that Paul lays out in verses 28 through 30. You notice how he goes from the spirit groaning, and then he just sort of starts telling us these verses that we often break off from the context and read as if they are general truths. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, and so on and so forth. What the Spirit's presence in our life means is that we are those people, that our suffering is not senseless, but that it's part of the pattern of the life of Jesus, working all things together for good, that darkness does not triumph over light, but that light triumphs over darkness, that death does not triumph, but life triumphs, that agony does not triumph, but glory triumphs. And the only way these things are true of us, verses 28 through 30, is that the Spirit has come and united us with the suffering and agony of Jesus so that we might also be united to his resurrection. He gives us the power to persevere, to endure, and he is that power. In the Advent season, we light candles and they are candles of watching and waiting. They are the foretaste of hope in the midst of despair. And it's not a coincidence that in places in scripture and throughout the Christian tradition, the candles are themselves symbolic of the Holy Spirit. 
What I want you to understand is that the Spirit is the Advent candle in our lives, attesting to the light that is to come in the midst of a darkness that so often threatens us. He shines within us as the presence of the future. He gives us enough light to long for the coming new day. He allows us to keep vigil in hope of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in glory. And he reminds us, finally, that the present sufferings, however great they seem and are, are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Think about that. The present sufferings, some of this means more to you right now than others, but it, we all encounter suffering in our lives, that the present sufferings are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. That must be some glory, right? Think about that. It's not trivializing sufferings. It must be some glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the witness and the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. May we all hear him tonight testifying to us that we are the children of God. Lord, may we during this Advent season know that our groanings are longing for Christ's return, the making of all things new. And Lord, may we have that hope, genuine hope that our sufferings are not senseless, that they're not in vain, that they have, by the power of the Spirit, by his coming into our lives, been joined to the sufferings of Christ and are the sufferings that will issue forth into a glory that we can't even fathom. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.